Welcome back to another Sports Next Door podcast. My name is Owen, and I'm joined, as I always am, by my virtual neighbor, Max. How's it going, my friend? Uh, Super Bowl hangover is uh, is cured? Yeah, it wasn't too much of a hangover, I guess. Uh, I don't know if that's on the players for not going to extended OT or on me for drinking the 5-6 light stuff and not going any harder or any faster. But either way, not too much of a hangover, but kind of a different buzz riding uh, goat hangover yeah the it, awe of his goatness or in in my situation a little bit of goat depression i i respect tom brady i just i don't like watching him win <laughs> i don't know why yeah so it was, it was quite the night i got hammered on some stuff last night uh but not alcohol <laughs> it was the, mostly the bets uh, and yeah. we'll probably talk about that a little bit later uh but the, yeah it still it's the super bowl and even in these crazy different times we still are able to make the most of things and my house got together in front of the tv we had a couple of people who had no idea what was going on but of course you got to have the nachos we had the chicken wings um we had this big board set up full of props that people were checking off and uh had some incentives based on that <laughs> and uh yeah it was everyone was pumped up and then as the game went along, you could tell the one or two people who weren't football fans, they were bored out of their minds. That it's kind of my biggest takeaway was, yeah, it's a Super Bowl, and I always love watching sports, but this one was, it fell flat based on all the hype that it was generating as, as it could be one of the greatest Super Bowls ever. You've got the goat versus the kid, as we mentioned uh, way back in our other podcast, but uh, this one... It was a bit of a snooze fest. There was no touchdowns really over 20 yards, no deep like long ball that got caught. And and the game was pretty much over by halftime. There were obviously some people, myself included, who thought, well, this is what the Chiefs do, right? They get behind big and and they come back. But all the lead did was continue to grow. And so (laughs) I was kind of sitting there in the fourth quarter. I knew the game was over, so I didn't have much to do trying to figure out like okay maybe I get a little bit of cleanup done early so I'm not up too late (laughs) yeah it had that kind of feeling to it because I wasn't a huge Brady fan so I wasn't sitting there absorbing the moment and and feeling the uh praise and accomplishment of uh TB12 I remember one I'm pretty sure I want to say it was the Pats versus Rams where Everyone was, I can't remember if it was the Pats versus Rams or the Eagles versus Pats, but everyone was predicting kind of like a guns blazing offensive show and it ended up being a total defensive clinic. That like, that's my, what I think of when I hear Super Bowl snooze fest and compared to that, I enjoyed the, I mean, I enjoyed that one too. I I enjoy watching defense and football, but this one seemed more exciting to me than that and we'll get maybe more into this as we get more into the nitty-gritty of the game but I don't think I let go of my breath and said like okay the Pats have this till about five six minutes left in the fourth quarter so in hindsight yeah it it wasn't that close but in the moment during the game I just the Chiefs have been that potent and that threatening and 
for that much longer success. I mean, this was Mahomes' first game losing by double digits ever. So I don't know. It's weird because only a game, like a game this far apart, only two, three touchdowns ahead, is it like feeling close to me? If it was neck and neck, I would just be like, oh yeah, Mahomes has this. So it's like I, I was slightly more in the moment. Maybe I was kind of, I guess rooting for Brady a little more. I'm not super invested one way or the other, but it's kind of special to see something that spectacular play out. So I I like watching the history being made. Yeah, you could tell this game was different though. As soon as they went to halftime, and I remember my sister texted me because she's watching the game. She doesn't really know what's going on. She's thinking, "Do you think the Bucks are gonna win?" And I told her, "I said, no." This is what the Chiefs do is they make their name falling behind and then scoring 25 in a row or whatever. And they came out and they only got a field goal. And that's when I knew it was over because that is what the Chiefs do is they come out and they just make the adjustments and throw the ball over the field. And Mahomes is scrambling around and he definitely was scrambling around tonight, but in a different way. Um, And them settling for that field goal after the drive actually looked promising in the beginning. Uh, that was a huge indicator to me that the Bucks defense really had them figured out. And the biggest part of this game was that they were getting to Mahomes consistently. It was this offensive line. You know, we had three of their top offensive linemen were all out, either injury or uh, our boy Duvernay Tardif opted out. And uh, they had guys who they picked up off the waiver wire think their center at one point they benched him and then brought him back into the fold and going up against this Tampa Bay front line that had just gotten better every single game in the playoffs they had no chance and that meant Mahomes had no chance of going through his reads properly because he had a second to one and a half seconds to even make a decision before he was running for his life and in the fourth quarter, it really came to be because the Bucks could smell blood in the water, but uh, it was all game where he was running for his life, and he made some incredible plays. Some of the screenshots of the one where he's like completely horizontal, looks like a college football play where the ball just flies out of his hand, but he generated no power, but somehow just goes 30 yards down the field, and then hits the guy right in the helmet, and yeah, just... That was that was the epitome of last night was just Mahomes trying his best, walking on a turf toe that he's got to have surgery on, whipping the ball all over the place, but again, no help from some of his receivers. Yeah, I mean, he looked, uh, he'd be limping in between plays. I'd be like, huh, guess guess that might be it. Like he's he's not going to be able to do the same things. And then he'd go out and like, scramble for a first down or make one of those ridiculous throws and i was like is what is he just the adrenaline like kicks in as soon as he snaps it and he just can't feel that toe that probably is pretty close to he does typically have a bit of like a weird gait so i don't it, it obviously was a little bit more exaggerated than normal but he does kind of look like that normally he just is an unorthodox like athlete the way he moved his arms and such walking around yeah. kind of caught my eye a couple times too yeah. so yeah, yeah it's it, fun. the first the first couple drives i mean both defenses put the pressure on early i don't know if you caught this and the difference was mahomes was able to scramble for first downs whereas brady kind of just had to accept the losses i was like oh this is it this is going to be 
the story but yeah it's that and, and that is something that you will often see in the super bowl because there's so much adrenaline for these guys jacked up that most super bowls start really slowly like that's the first time tom brady's ever scored more than three points in a first quarter uh first time gronk's ever had a touchdown in the super bowl and and yeah just some some firsts for them tonight if there's going to be any team that comes out with that laser sharp focus, it's going to be a Tom Brady team because he's now been here 10 times and, and knows exactly how the game goes. Uh, but he wasn't incredible, but he was what I thought he was going to be. He wasn't going to turn the ball over and he was going to put his receivers in position to make big plays. And uh, it turned out to be Gronk and it turned out to be Antonio Brown and Leonard Fournette, three guys that all came to Tampa Bay because of Tom Brady. Feels kind of like a LeBron type story where he brings the free the uh, bargain bin guys with him, and they end up being a huge uh, part of the success. But yeah, he no turnovers. I think he was just a little bit over 200 yards, and was super super efficient. He didn't have a lot of throwaways. He was just hitting guys, dinking and dunking, and and they relied on Ronald Jones and Leonard Fournette, who if they're not putting the ball on the ground, then it's going to be really, really hard to stop the Bucks' offense because uh, they're, they're good for three or four every time they touch the ball. And then they set up play action a couple times to different guys. It was just really well-run offense and really well-run defense. Like the Chiefs got outcoached both sides of the field because um, the Buccaneers linebackers have been fantastic and they were again tonight. There's only so much you can do against Travis Kelsey, but they really limited the damage from him. And they were doubling Tyreek Hill all night. Their goal was just not to get beat like they did way back when these teams played each other the first time. Uh, and so there was lots to help over top on Tyreek. He looked frustrated. And uh, yeah, big kudos to Todd Bowles and, and Byron Leftwich. They had fantastic game plans that, that were executed to perfection tonight. So we shall move on to the story that was not necessarily part of the game itself, obviously played a huge role in the game, but was not the players. It was the refs. Uh, and that was kind of the big moment in the Super Bowl that really changed the tide of the game was that those kind of first or those last two drives for the Bucks in the first half where there was a pass interference uh, on Breland on a deep ball to Mike Evans and then a pass interference uh, in the end zone that got placed at the one yard line. And the Chiefs actually ended up getting the stop, but then they gave the ball back to the Bucks. Um, Chiefs score a field goal. Bucks get the ball back with a minute left. The Chiefs called two timeouts trying to get the ball back with time left and, and the Bucks convert the third down. Uh, then they get some shots down the field uh, and they end up scoring a touchdown on that drive. Looked very similar to the Green Bay Packers game in that regard. And very, very shocking again, that the team team was making the same mistakes two like two games in a row. How did you not watch the Green Bay film? Um, yeah. And then that really was the, the, the swinging moments was the combination of those two drives. And I know you sent me that, cool stuff on the uh, defensive pass interference. I didn't really have an issue with most of the calls except for the the one in the end zone 
where it seemed like Brady threw the ball like way out the back of the end zone. And there is a certain degree of which like uncatchableness plays a factor in pass interference, but it seems like they've kind of gotten away from that rule in recent years. Like you really have to throw it out into like the seats for it to be uncatchable. So uh, I, so in the end, I ended up understanding that in the moment I was a little bit heated because I thought it was a bad call. But if you look back, the Chiefs really shot themselves in the foot on defense with some of the bad unsportsmanlike conducts and and lining up offside on a field goal, just like really basic stuff that they weren't doing right. And it goes back to just the the mismatching coaching on this night. Yeah, uh, shout out to Jane Coaston, my favorite political analysis, formerly with Vox, now with the New York Times, who's a part-time college football tweeter and for one night of the year tweets about the NFL, that night being the Super Bowl, who's, I think, observed that between 2010 and 2015, four of the five teams that won the Super Bowl were either second or first in the league in receiving like defensive pass interference calls on their side. Um, I didn't, I'm not a huge football junkie and it's so hard to understand or not understand, but objectively evaluate the calls made in football just because there's so much going on in so many plays that you can't possibly see it all. So you can't really say like, oh, they're calling that, but they're not calling this because you only really see what they're calling. You don't see like maybe Tampa Bay was doing similar holding and it got missed but probably not i imagine for like the most money invested sporting event of the year they have enough refs and enough eyes to see it all so my interpretation of the refing is just there's like it's not about the catching there's just a certain level of um I don't know what the word is, cleanness on defense that the league is looking to see. And the Chiefs just fell short of the bar and that gave so many third down opportunities where it might have been switched to fourth down and given Mahomes a chance to fire and get out ahead. It instead let uh, Tampa build up that lead that crushed in the end. Yeah, Yeah, and... Even if some of those penalties hadn't gone their way, it just the fact that they were getting so much pressure with only four guys rushing the passer and the way that Mahomes was running for his life, you could have seen some other thing that would have gone wrong. You could have had a lot more holding penalties on the Chiefs' O-line that would have ended up having similar results or Mahomes gets forced into an interception. Kind of the one that got tipped earlier in the game wasn't necessarily his fault, but you could have seen that happening again. Uh, oh, and he had the one late. and. <laughs> So two picks in that game, which is surprising, but uh, I had the under on the interception. So that was one of the few that I hit uh, in that game. Um, yeah. And that, that pretty much decided the game. The second half was pretty boring. Like I said, I, I knew the game was over. I was getting ready to clean up and uh, not bathe in the Tom Brady uh, walk around fame all the kids holding the trophy and the Super Bowl MVP speech and the TV 12 method. I didn't need to hear all that. So yeah, I came I down and prepped. For- I didn't enjoy it as much as I enjoy like a Stanley cup celebration. I mean, first of all, I was very confused to not see the commissioner get booed. And then 
Oh, he didn't? See, I truly, like, I didn't watch oh, it. <laughs> maybe they've just mastered the audio levels so much where they just, like, have celebratory noises, like, blaring in the stadium and, like, certain mics, and it's an open field, so the sound probably doesn't reverberate the same way it does, like, inside an arena. But, and then, I guess, mixed feeling. Happy to see the coach get a chance to talk. Not... It's weird to see the GM is the first guy who gets a mic and gets the trophy. I what I mean, it wasn't the same as watching like the handoff to the captain and then just like the pure jubilation as the trophy gets passed around. So mm-hmm. that was less enjoyable. I the one I was I very much enjoyed that third quarter. I thought that uh, the Bucks needed to be very clinical and put out like exactly that performance that they did and it was a matter of threading a needle so i'll just add that in before we uh move yeah. on to it, it was just that was when the game was over as the chiefs got that field goal and the bucks immediately came down and scored such an efficient touchdown on the drive and i said oh this looks like a team this is what looks like like normal chiefs games where a team will score a field goal thinking that that's enough and kansas city will just come down and put their foot on their throat trading three for seven and the chiefs got to taste their own medicine in that third quarter it was yeah that that was just a truly uh masterful drive at the beginning of the second half of the for the bucks i think i've just read too much of that uh football manga which is like full of comebacks so i really don't like let go of my breath until it's like well and truly over um and that served me really well in the 2017 super bowl with the come back the because I wasn't even like phased I was like no they're still in this they still got this and then they went and come back and I guess I've watched same with the uh, Chiefs last year so I don't know I I truly in football don't think it's over till it's really over and that I guess maybe keeps me holding my breath a little longer than the average person which is probably going to make me look silly nine times out of ten but yeah, but but then one of those 10 times you get it right. Okay, so what does this mean for the legacy of the players in this game? And uh, I think it's pretty simple. Tom is greatest football player of all time and is up there with your Jordan, your Gretzky, Serena Williams, your Muhammad Ali's, all those guys uh, as one of the best to ever do it because no one's really – top the amount of winning he's done in his sport it's one thing to have the rings but he has consistently won every year his winning percentage is out of this world he's got 34 playoffs wins the next closest person has 16 like it's it's absurd it's truly absurd um gronk gets his fourth ring and cements himself as probably the greatest tight end of all time uh really interesting that Brady kind of was going up against Mahomes in a battle. And then you had Gronk and Kelsey as kind of the subplot of, of really special tight ends. And, uh, and even though Gronk is nowhere near what he used to be, it was a vintage performance. He had some great blocking. And then just he's so reliable. When, when Brady needs him, he's going to show up. He got two touchdowns. And, and he had a great classic play action over the middle catch where he kind of it, old Gronk would have dragged that last guy and probably run it for a touchdown, but he just got tripped up uh, by his ankles. Uh, but I love Gronk. <laughs> He's kind of the one one Patriot who I could deal with during their success. And I just think he's a fun guy. So 
happy for him. And yeah, Fournette proved all the haters wrong, came off the waiver wire and had a great playoffs. Bruce Arians finally gets one. Feels similar to kind of how Andy Reid finally got that one to save his legacy last year. Um, I think the two of those coordinators should be up for jobs. Probably not this upcoming year because most of the positions have been hired, but definitely next year. Teams will be looking at that Bucks staff. Probably Todd Bowles will get another shot after he was the coach of the Jets a couple of years ago. Um, and, and for Mahomes, uh, th- three Super Bowls or two Super Bowl appearances in three years, an MVP, one Super Bowl. That is as much as you can ask for from any player not named Tom Brady in in the Super Bowl era. And obviously, I I don't think he'll catch Brady at this point. He's got such a long way to go. And I don't know if anyone can repeat the sustained success that Tom has had just with how he's kept good care of his body. Mahomes is a little bit more scrambly and will be at risk of more injuries, as we saw in this playoffs. But he's definitely going to have an incredible career. It's just going to be who's going to be the second greatest quarterback of all time from now on. And Mahomes is, has a really good shot to get to that spot, but he'll never pass Brady. Yeah, I think when they look back at this game, I mean, the Mahomes base will probably try and look at the injury and say, yeah, we didn't have a healthy Mahomes. But that's kind of why I wanted to mention earlier when we were talking about the game that he looked I mean, he looked like the best athlete in the world to me in the game. Honestly, my dad and I were just like jogging, like mm-hmm. the athleticism, uh, the ability to outrun like four guys coming to smash him so many times, the technique and coordination to get off those like sidearm shots with such just like that's, I mean, in my opinion, MMA is like the pinnacle of sporting. But if I had to give a second place award, it would be to that performance by Mahomes. The mixture of like athleticism and technique is just what talent is all about. But yeah, I that kind of style doesn't lend itself quite as well to playing past 40. But and it so, but. I uh, wanted to mention like how impressive is the Bucks season when you look at uh, that seven and five start they had that I was hearing about. I was thinking about like right around the time we started our, this podcast is when they start. They I don't think they've lost a game since we started podcasting. I'd have to go back and listen to the first one and the second one to be sure, but timing lines up pretty well. And I wanted to bring that up because of they did such an impressive job of weathering and suffering that adversity and then coming back stronger for it and putting all the pieces together to become the team that won the Super Bowl. All the adversity they went through made them the team they were last night that got them the win. And so I'm so curious what Mahomes now, having been stopped by Brady twice in his two of his three playoff appearances, what kind of quarterback is that going to make him as he really just steps into his prime? Yeah, it, it truly is remarkable what they did. Three road playoff wins to get back home for the Super Bowl. I think that did play a piece into it. Uh, yeah, and they had that week 13 bye week where they were the last team in the league to get a bye week. And they had a lot of stuff they needed to sort out because they never had OTAs uh, and Tom Brady needed to get on the same page as a lot of receivers and, and 
as you can go back and listen to the tape, I still didn't think they were all on the same page, but they didn't need to be. They just needed to be good enough to not turn the ball over. And then this defense really like took over and stepped up to the plate big time. And they went eight no from that bye week, just ran down the league, beat some great quarterbacks in their home stadium, Drew Brees, Aaron Rodgers. Um, and yeah, truly, truly remarkable what they did and and a very special season for uh, Buccaneers fans who forever had been uh, at the leagues or settled in squalor because the Bucks had the worst winning percentage out of any team in the major four North American sports. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that... I guess maybe we can round off the legacy. I wanted to circle back to Brady to point out two things. One of the ones that you just pointed out, that's going to be a huge feather in the cap that he came to a team like Tampa or that winning percentage storyline. And the second, just something they were talking about during the broadcast was the parody of the NFL in recent years. No team has won back-to-back Super Bowls, I think, in uh, 20-something years. So I was texting my buddy last night just about Brady and GOAT status, and he talked about, like, so much winning success over such a long period of time. And the only other player that came to mind was uh, LeBron for me. But you look at, like, the NBA, what, what's been successful. Like, you had the Heat era, then you had the Cavs, the Warriors. Like, you get these kind of super teams and it's a matter of signing like two or three of the right star players and a few of the right role players and that is just success bottled whereas in the nfl a league where no team's been able to win the super bowl twice and there's so many more pieces that have to align and be moved into the right place and success is so much more intangible to have that same kind of long winning over a long period of time I think uh in my books elevates Brady's run probably to the top of the major sports absolutely yeah there's not much more that can be said other than that like he went nine years in between Super Bowls in New England and then had this like resurgent dynasty run uh where they had all uh they brought in some more guys and the special thing about new england is that they were consistently near the top of the league so always drafting late in the first round and having to find diamonds in the rough and eventually that caught up to them and that's why he left and came to this tampa bay team that was just loaded with talent uh, because they had been near the bottom of the league consistently and had all these great pieces and had a lot of cap room to bring in some guys that Brady wanted. Uh, and yeah, he, this was the perfect move for him. It got questioned way back, but turns out he was exactly where he wanted and he fit right in. They let him do a lot of stuff that he wanted, bring in his staff, which never flew in New England. And uh, perfect storm. And I think they'll be right back in it next year. They'll probably be even better because they'll actually have time to go through all the scenarios that Brady loves to go through and work on little things that they didn't get to use this season. You just worry about because football being so physical as it is. And the last team to go back to back was like the 0304 Patriots. Um, it is going to be difficult for them to sustain that success. There are going to be guys who are now going to want their big payday now that they've won a Super Bowl. So we'll see if they can keep the core of the team together and see if they can 
repeat the uh, success they had on both sides of the ball without injury. Um, it's rare, but the winning team of the Super Bowl usually is a lot more successful than the losing team. So we'll see how the Chiefs are affected next year. That's that's the thing I'm really interested to see. Yeah, I, Mahomes is so special. I can't imagine he does anything but get better. But at the same time, I don't know what more he could have given it in that performance and how much more there is to add to his game. Yes, they gave the Chiefs definitely have some things that they'll need to work on. But once when you've got Mahomes, you should be able to get all the pieces around him and figure things out. All right. The game. I'm done breaking it down. We can talk a little bit halftime show. I don't think either of us are the biggest weekend fan. My sister was really excited for it. Uh, and she felt a little bit left down, uh, let down. Um, I certainly thought it was fine, but I didn't think it was anything special. I don't think his music is super compatible with the atmosphere, and and some of the stuff he did was just a little odd. And if unless you were a weekend fan, you wouldn't really un- understand some of the things that he was doing. Um, they were able to use the entire field for the first time because normally they have fans come in onto the field to watch the halftime show, but obviously can't do that this year. So the big number was, was kind of cool. Um, and we had, we had a streaker on the field <laughs> in the fourth quarter. I saw someone, there's a text message thro- uh, floating around on Twitter that some guy had bet $50,000 on a streaker prop bet on this like offshore gambling site and was could have won like a million bucks. I wonder if he'll actually end up getting that money if he himself is the one that did the streaking. Uh, but yeah, it was a pretty, yeah, looking at the videos in a pretty electric run, he, he m- made a couple guys miss and then managed to get into the end zone. So yeah, obviously cool. Chiefs needed some of that energy. I like how the uh, broadcast handled it. They were just kind of like, oh, and then cut away and didn't mention it twice. And that's how you don't give any limelight to that sort of thing and just don't make a big deal out of it. And people watching at home aren't inspired to want to do that. Um, For the halftime show, I tried. I never really think about it as a musical thing, as that is really not my genre. Um, as as a spectacle as entertainment i thought it was pretty interesting again i never even know if when they're lip syncing and if when the mic is live i thought the notes he was hitting were pretty high and impressive if he was hitting them all live i thought the uh the ghost choir was Mm -hmm. cool i thought the reappearing like on the stage at the top in the back golden room was cool i I don't know if there was some reference with like the faceless masked dancers. Um, well, they were all wearing the bandages that he had when he went to the award show a couple okay. weeks ago. He had all these bandages and then in his music video, he had plastic surgery. So right. that's what that was. But I didn't really, I haven't done enough. I'm just not interested in him enough. So I didn't yeah. know the uh, story behind it, but that's where I knew it was from. And, uh, yeah, not a lot to say about that. Do you have a favorite commercial? Uh, I like the uh, Matthew McConaughey Doritos. Yep. The flat Stanley. <laughs> Get going 3D. I think that was a good one. I heard there's there was some solid ones. I I still I don't have any time today, but uh, maybe tonight before I go to bed, I'll I'll watch some of the 
Super Bowl commercials on YouTube. Just catch up on them because they are interesting to watch. Yeah, it is fascinating. Just, okay, this is the pinnacle of marketing. Like, (laughs) so much money must go into first booking the slot, then, like, paying a team to develop the commercials. I'm really curious what the negotiating is like with celebrities for commercial appearance because on one hand like you pay for celebrities probably but on the other hand if you're a celebrity you want your name and your image out there like i think it's awesome for drake's um rap for drake from state farm so i wonder how who how the leveraging goes in that uh i had two i liked paramount they just had such a star-studded thing i liked um the bud light when life gives you lemons one Mm -hmm. that was great and um the uber eats which we're not the biggest fan of here due to how they kind of take a lot of money off of restaurants but getting on the wayne's world cardi b had had (laughs) favorite of the night so (laughs) mixed feelings on that one yes uh there are some good ones and there normally are uh that's kind of the last positive piece of the super bowl that really for me i don't really want to talk about the props if you go back and listen I got all of them wrong, essentially, except for, like, two. Did you get so, the ties right? Pardon? Did you get the ties right? I, I saw the ties, and it looked so close to gray and purple, but I didn't know who was who. Oh, yeah. I, I Yeah, I just I just took L's last night, so I, yeah, I didn't really want to get too much into that. The only one that I, like, I knew my absolute lock was the only one that hit, and that was Kelsey Receptions. I knew that was going to hit. It couldn't, it couldn't not hit. And so uh, that's the one that I get to pat myself on the back for. But besides that, it was a bloodbath. So no comment on that. Anything left you want to talk about for the Super Bowl? Uh, no, I think we can uh, end this segment. I don't think you want to say it. So I will uh, end this <laughs> segment saying salute to his goatness. And we're back, Max. Uh, it feels like a lifetime ago after the the long Sunday we had yesterday, but UFC fight night on Saturday. Break it down for me. Yeah, I'm just gonna walk through most of the main card. I, the prelims weren't too exciting or noteworthy, other than the uh, Oda Osborne KO. But there's only so much time in this segment, and so I kind of want to get straight to the stuff that interests me but i guess i'll kick it off saying that was a phenomenal knockout to open the card by osborne um not a lot else i i do remember him on the last connor mcgregor card talking a lot of shit saying he was going to be the next connor connor will be fighting on his card someday and then getting guillotined so uh props to him for taking a year figuring some things out and then getting back in there with a 30 second knockout but he got guillotined by Brian Kelleher, a someone who's been in the division and wet, gotten plenty of wins and like faced some of the top guys. And he got the knockout of a guy, I think, making his UFC debut. So there's still levels, but nicely on the right track. Moving on to the main card, uh, Danilo Marquez with a fantastic performance culminating in a rear naked choke over Mike Rodriguez, who got to feel tough for after his last uh lost mike herman which or ed herman i i'm kind of surprised marquez was as big of an underdog as he was in hindsight i mean he's a 
grappler and he's going up against the guy who just got submitted in his last fight so a little mad I didn't look at the betting lines a little closer on this one but he put on a great performance he, he kind of came out the first round and went right to the takedowns with like some really nice trips after getting the body lock and just making it tight and he didn't really do too much with it in the first round just kind of wore on him made some reads uh put some pressure searched for things which i'm i'm fine with one round of that because then in the second round i really liked what he did he he just waited he he took his time he didn't rush straight into it like that kind of thing is a bit of a one-trick pony you know the opponent's going to be thinking about it so make him sweat make him wait when you think the striker would be the one who's happy to be on the feet in this situation against the grappler but i think there must be a lot of nervousness and apprehension and just when's it going to come when's the shot going to come and just making them sweat for 60 seconds like really helps your cause and you use that apprehension to land a great overhand right and then i think he went in on a single leg the second time so switching up from the trips keep again like not being a one-trick pony and this time I felt like he had a lot of opportunity to pass the first mount in the first round. He didn't take it because he wanted the ground time. This time he did take it, set up some nice bombs, ground and pound, more pressure, just wearing on him the whole time. And then with like 30 seconds left in the round, uh, Rodriguez was trying to escape back to his feet. Marquez followed him beautifully, dragged him to the ground, and then set up a really pretty rear naked choke. I love to see that attack with the right hand. Uh, make him hand fight and then like switch it into a left hand he did it perfectly and that was all she wrote that's two wins in a row for marquez or yeah marquez and a really thoughtful precise um versatile patient i don't those are the words i'd describe to use to describe that performance and it was very impressive the next fight absolutely lived up to the hype for me. Benil Dariush versus Diego Ferreira, the two guys with the second and third longest winning streaks in the lightweight division, not counting Khabib Nurmagomedov, which I don't. I think he's well and truly retired at this point. So two biggest winning streaks in the division behind uh, Charles Oliveira and a phenomenal performance by Dariush against a really excellent fighter in Fahera. I mean, Dariush just put on the pressure and he he ate some shots to do so. He walked forward a little recklessly, but what was important was he was making Fahera pay the whole time. He was always landing his strikes first and then getting caught on counters. And I think if you're going to fight that way, you've got to land hard and you've got to land first. And that's going to take a little something off the counters. And what was most impressive, I think, about that striking pressure was it let him time some beautiful takedowns, especially in the second round. But just walk forward, throw heavy, make your opponent read, make him react. And then when he's so much thinking about the strike down, striking, the takedowns are going to be there. That is what mixed martial arts is all about using the striking to set up the grappling and using the grappling to set up the striking and Dariush did it beautifully there was some awesome scrambling i mean they're both uh i think medalists in like the world bjj competitions so 
the omoplata and leg lock defenses we saw from Frejero were fun to watch. Looking at Dariush stay like very comfortable in those offensive or dangerous positions for him and just find a way to get his offense off uh, and win rounds like that was fantastic. I I scored all three rounds for him. I I don't know what the hell that one judge, which actually gave Fehera the fight, was on. I can see making the argument for Fehera in the third round, but I thought Dariush had better pressure and landed better shots on the feet. But I think I think when one guy's looking to get takedowns and then those takedowns don't come in a round, you just sometimes that will sway judges to score the round for the strike guy who's defending the takedowns even if they do get a little outstruck that's what i saw anyway i i haven't rewatched that third round but amazing performance from fahara or from Dariush over fahara and i loved what he said in his post-fight interview why are you making us two guys on these five and six fight winning streaks fight each other we should be fighting up into the division we've earned the right to challenge these top guys i just fought this guy and he is a tough son of a bitch he still deserves to be fighting up and i completely agree with him like i i wish i'd love to see way more turnover in the division where because right now it's so hard to get into that top position that once they get there they're kind of cemented there for a while like you look dan hooker had to go through so such a impressive winning streak to get into the top five but then once he's there he kind of gets to hang there for a while it's similar with like paul felder and the top 10 i wish after like one loss they would immediately start fighting down and i really hope to see dariush like kind of as an alternate almost in the like lightweight title contention picture where you i think poirier versus Oliveira is the fight to make i think gaichi versus chandler would be an absolute banger i I'd be happy to see uh, McGregor fight like a Fahara. I'd be happy, um, or RDA maybe. But I want to see Dariush right in there against one of those guys. I I don't want to see him fighting anyone ranked below him or anyone like ranked close to him. He absolutely deserves a, a chance to crack the top with the run he's put on. And same with Fahara. Like he looked great. Just Dariush looked better. Um, so my like Fahara's stock didn't really fall in my opinion i think just a rest a wrestler with the bjj chops of uh dariush is like one of the worst matchups for Fahara. i think dariush is just in another gear right now and that men- mental zone he entered in the striking that like fearlessness to walk forward but still with the timing and power to land good shots not just eating stupid ones needlessly um just is too much for a lot of guys unless you've got like one shot knockout power and even if you do you have to still set that up and i mean fahara had some great counters some good moments but Dariush too much for him. I'd I'd love to see like Fahara fight like a Paul Felder if Felder's still fighting, but it's it's tough. Like these guys spend their whole careers trying to get into the top ten of the division. And then once they get there, they're so afraid to have the that taken away from them. And that's where you what you see guys like Paul Felder at right now. 
So I, I just, I'd like to see more turnover. Um, I, I, I kind of hope Tony Ferguson just disappears from the top 10 of the lightweight division and goes and has that uh, Nate Diaz fight he called for because that would be a really, really fun one. So congratulations to Benil Dariush. Um, phenomenal performance. Looking, watching the striking evolve to catch up to the grappling and make him such a dangerous fighter in such an awesome division is fantastic. Um, hats off. Uh, there were a couple the next two fights I'm just going to skip over and move right along to the co-main event where Corey Sandhagen knocked out Frankie Edgar in 30 seconds with a flying knee. Did you see the highlight? Oh, yeah. And I was showing it to my friends. That was that was electric. Uh, I, I don't know much about either of them, but uh, it seems like people were saying that that was his like kind of big moment to kick off his run. So maybe a bit bit like uh what's the guy's name yeah that maybe this is a kind of comp there i mean there's a lot of parallels you can draw to that knockout as um just the the striker landing the flying knee to put the wrestler out cold i I don't know i mean he also had a fantastic knockout in his last fight with a spinning back kick so that's two really impressive knockouts he's put together over two really tough, dangerous opponents who I think, I mean, Marias just got finished by Font, but before that, he'd only been finished once by Cejudo. And uh, that was Edgar's, I think, third time being knocked out. And there's some parallels to the Ortega knockout. Um, Ortega did it with an uppercut. And what the parallel is is that wrestling style level change fainty style of edgar just let him be timed and walk right into something that heavy um sandhagen just moving backwards for the first 25 seconds of the fight to figure out the speed and movement of edgar i talked in the breakdown about the versatile weapons that he has and he tossed a couple leg kicks in there to give him something to think about and he's just so dangerous having like the the ability to throw the spinning kicks the front kicks to get the pressure off the head kicks if you let your guard down there obviously or not obviously but the hands are very crisp as well and just such a versatile dangerous wheelhouse from Sandhagen and he pulled out the perfect tool in the perfect moment just moving moving to his left letting Frankie circle on the power side getting a read on how much time Frankie needs to close space and then waiting for that wrestling style that Dan Henderson kind of iconized of you can faint for a takedown, you can go for a takedown, or you can make it look like you're going for a takedown and toss the overhand right. And it looked to me like it was the latter that uh, Frankie was doing, like dipping his head, throwing his hand over it, and that works great, but this is the adjustment you make against that level change, and it was timed and executed perfectly by Sandhagen. I, he's calling for the winner of Aljo Yan, and I think he absolutely deserves that way more than uh, TJ Dillashaw. I, either way, I think it's a fantastic fight. I loved uh, the little snark or quip he had to Yan about, like, hey, you want to fight Dillashaw? I don't even think you're going to get past Aljo. And the respect he has for Aljo, I mean, 
of course, after Al just submitted him, but uh, he's still being like, I owe him a nap. But uh, a very somber tone from him as well. I, that was, I mean, Frankie Edgar is UFC royalty. Just when you've held a belt and you ma- you've managed to stay relevant and stay threatening and stay at the top of a division for so long, there's no other way to describe it you than uh, UFC royalty. And I don't know where he goes from here because he looked he looked like himself in the Munoz fight. I I don't think there's many guys who can do that to him, but this does set him fairly decently back from a title picture. I'd act, I think, I mean, Aldo called for a Dillashaw fight, which would be fantastic, but I'd also love to see Edgar uh, welcome Dillashaw back to the octagon. So maybe some legacy, but top of the division fights for him would be interesting. I, I think if he still wants to fight, he still has the ability. But it was a rough night for the old guard for the most part uh, in this fight and in the main event with Alexander Volkov knocking out Alistair Overeem. Did you see that one or just the crazy? I'm just curious how like spectacle of knockout versus on uh, gravity on the card makes its way into mainstream highlights. Well, Alexander Volkov, similar to his last fight against Walt Harris, just was able to get very comfortable, very in the zone, figure out the reads defensively, and just let the offense flow. I, what do, I have a couple words written down, like patient, accurate, and powerful. I, I, his nickname is Drago. If I, I assume that just translates Russian into dragon, I think Titan would be a little more fitting because... He's just so menacing, like being so patient, taking his time, picking his shots and ramping up the volume. And Overeem just wasn't able to mix it up in a way that made Volkov like stop, reconsider or disrupt his flow. He, I mean, they're such big boys and they're in a slightly smaller octagon. So three steps backwards and your back is against the cage. I, I, thought that shell defense would get him into trouble it worked great against like the hooking style of sakai but the straighter punches of volkov are more poised to get through that shell guard and just power started landing heavy and instantly and volkov keeping his reach didn't let uh alistair get off any like knees as he did against sakai he wasn't he was he was trying he was trying body kicks he was trying like teep kicks to the knee he was throwing that overhand which connected a couple times but the night was all volkovs he just he even when the overhands landed he managed to roll his head with them and not really get staggered or hurt at all and he just had such confidence walking forward that you knew it was just a matter of time and it really was it didn't take that long a couple minutes into the second round Volkov just I mean I have him ranked as the third best heavyweight in the world behind the champion we'll see for champion Stipe number one in Ganu number two Blades but below that I don't think anyone beats him I mean Blades and Ganu are just so special athletically that I think the slower, more patient Volkov struggles to deal with that initial burst of speed and athleticism. We saw that very recently against Blades. Maybe he can make some adjustments and find the flying knee. Uh, 
he did do a better job in those later rounds, kind of throwing lower looping uppercutty shots to discourage the takedown attempt. But Volk just polishing his game and really finding his comfort zone has been uh, the story of those last two fights. He just looked so loose and relaxed and in the flow of the striking against both Harris and Overeem. And when he gets like that, the finish is just a matter of time. So I maybe he fights... We've got two big heavyweight main events coming up. And after those, I will do a little more heavyweight matchmaking depending on how those two shake out you can see some different matchups for volkov but for me tonight demonstrated he is absolutely the best heavyweight in the world behind the aforementioned three so fantastic performance by volkov and i don't know about overeem i he's looked good in his last few fights he i don't think he looked terrible in this fight i just think volkov is that good i've overeem gets huge paydays when he steps into the octagon and i think he's still a problem for most of this division so i i don't see him getting to the title now like we talked about this as his last title run and that's over but if he still wants to fight i think he still can fight and that's kind of what his instagram post hinted at like can't wait to get back in the gym so I mean, he's going to have his own legacy when it's all said and done. And the ability to compete at a high level at such an old age is very, very impressive, just like it is with Edgar. And so if he still wants to fight, I think he can. And we'll see what's next for him. Uh, Maybe the UFC takes some pity and finally gives him a grappler. And that's going to wrap up this fight night recap and this combat corner. Um, Tune in Friday for the preview of Usman versus Burns. And we're back. And the Los Angeles Dodgers are the 2021 World Series champions. (laughs) I'm just kidding. But uh, that is definitely the baseball world is feeling right now after the Dodgers sign the top free agent pitcher uh top probably player in this free agent class uh trevor bauer to a three-year 102 million dollar contract uh but he has an opt-out in that third year which he'll probably take uh he did mention he wanted a short-term high money contract he was last year's cy young award winner in the national league and just gets added to this dodgers rotation that is basically full of essentially you've got three number one pitchers and then four guys who all could probably be the number two starter on every other team in the league and probably one of the deepest rotations um, because that's just the Dodger model is they are just so, so deep at every position. They're able to convince guys to take a lesser role because their team is just unbelievably successful every single year i'll just walk you through the rotation we've got walker bueller clayton kershaw trevor bauer david price and dustin may are kind of the five starters um and then you've got your sixth and seventh starter as julio urias and tony gonzalin and tony gonzalin was uh like the rookie of the year last year and urias was 
the best closer for that. Like he just became their closer and shut everyone else out in that bubble run they had in the playoffs last year. So just a disgusting top seven starting pitchers uh, from a Blue Jays perspective where we basically have one reliable starter right now. It's, it's a little bit frustrating, but the Dodgers, they're willing to spend and they've done such a great job accumulating talent in all different manner of ways that of course they land the top guy and, and just, yeah, if they're not back at least in the world series, it's, it's a, it's a wasted year for them because they're just so good. And and their pitching is just going to be lights out this season. So, so cool little story there. And uh, the batting offense, the field and nothing to complain about either. I assume. No, they're just a team that's done such a great job accumulating talent at every position. It it truly it feels it's hard to even compare them, it it because it's a different sport and they've done such a great job. It's but it's kind of like one of those soccer teams, right? Where it's just like in the Premier League or FC Barcelona, like they're just great at every position. It's like the Dodgers are like that. There's a couple other teams in that space with them, in terms of spending and in terms of talent. But overall, like the Dodgers are like a Barcelona or a Manchester United, and then everyone else is just beneath them because they're just – it's one thing to be a team like the Yankees where you can just spend and it fixes a lot of your holes, but the Dodgers have managed to have a great farm system and spend. Like they have the best of both worlds, and that's – and it finally accumulated with the World Series win, but they had been – in the playoffs now, like for 10 straight years, they've been in the World Series quite a few times the last couple of years. They're just a machine that keeps rolling. So if the Leafs were allowed to like go out and sign a Headstrom, I don't know, Markstrom, I mean, some Swedes. Yes, but, but Burns that, and I don't know. That, but they had the best, like they had one of the five best picks in each draft for the last couple well, that's of why years. I chose too. the Leafs with uh, yeah. Matthews, Marner, Nylander, Riley. Yeah. But it, like they'd have even more young talent and then they'd get all the best free agents. <laughs> how, how did they, you said they're in the playoffs the last 10 years though. Because the baseball draft has like 40 rounds. Okay. So you can just find good guys anywhere. Baseball is just very different. The development timeline, like a baseball player that gets drafted, doesn't play in the majors for at least three years. Yeah. Like it's just, yeah. So they find guys with high potential really early on. And because their development system is so great, they can turn even those guys who maybe aren't a hundred percent sure, you know what they are. They can turn them into something great. Cool. Yeah. Just a testament to their success. All right. That's baseball. We slide into basketball. There were basketball games this weekend. There were hockey games this weekend, believe it or not Uh, (laughs) on Sunday. They were all afternoon games uh, because the States, they love their football. They got to make sure that the Super Bowl is by itself. Uh, but I actually want to talk about a lot of the Saturday games. And one of those Saturday games uh, was the Toronto Raptors against the Brooklyn. That was or against, yeah, against the Atlanta Hawks. Um, they lose that one. Story of that game was basically Trey Young was fantastic. He really played at his own pace spread the ball out. The Hawks were able to score at any point. So even Raptors late runs, they had a shot to bring it within three late uh, and Siakam had a shot blocked by Capella who played really well. Um, Yeah. Is it that game? Nothing too much. You can draw from that. Just the Hawks had a great offensive night and 
Uh, Chris Boucher had a career high 29 points. He was all over the offensive glass. Really, really love to see on the on the second half of back to back him showing that kind of energy with seven offensive rebounds. So just a shout out to Chris. Um, Norm's been really solid in the starting lineup, especially in that Friday night game against the Nets, where uh, he came out and was just attacking them and no one could stop him. Uh, Siakam had a great performance in that third quarter against the Brooklyn Nets. Uh, and Kyle got, got, I think he got an elbow. He was bleeding and he hit a couple huge dagger threes, which was fantastic. That was a fun one to watch. Uh, but kind of that game overshadowed a little bit by the weird KD storyline where for contact tracing reasons, he was out and then the result came back negative. So we checked into the second quarter, played the entire second quarter, played a little bit of the third quarter and then had to be taken out of the game for COVID-19 protocols. That's not quite what happened. Okay. So he was out because someone he had contact with, whatever that means, um, we don't know, had an inconclusive test. And so at first the Nets thought they had to sit him out and they were in contact with the league. Like, what do we do? And the league informed them like at at the last minute, okay, we're not going to make him sit for an inconclusive test. Um, so they played him because the test hadn't come back and then it came back positive and that's when they pulled him. The strange, there's two strange parts about it. This first that, uh, Durant as recently as January has tested for having COVID antibodies in his system from him having it back in March. And second, that Durant was in contact with the rest of his team. So if you're worried about spread, you stop the game. Why do you just pull Durant? Uh, Yeah. And and then both teams both go and have back-to-back games. Brooklyn went to Philadelphia and uh, Toronto went to Atlanta. So like if obviously they got lucky and nothing came out of this, but if, if, if he had managed to, uh, contracted from that positive test, then we've got we've got four teams now who all have COVID circling around the league. Yeah, I mean it's it's hard to evaluate because we have no idea what it means that Durant had close contact with someone who tested positive. Like, were they in an elevator together? Did they stop and say hello on the street? But it, like, I I kind of I want an all or nothing policy, and in this case, I want nothing. Like, if it really especially since Durant has the antibodies like you I don't I think it was a really silly decision and just continuing uh, the trend we're observing of making policy that looks good to look like you're taking COVID seriously but not actually do it if they wanted to stop the game because they're convinced that I would support that more than just pulling Durant like I and then if the rest of the team is testing negative, like why can't Durant play the next game against Philly? It's, I'm not an epidemiologist, but I saw a funny tweet uh, this weekend. Like, oh, so I'm starting to realize epidemiologists are the economists of the science world. Um, Kind of the same way we say economists have predicted 12 of the last six recessions, I think is how epidemiologists operate. But yeah, I don't. I don't like it. I. It doesn't really seem 
on board with uh, the fact that Durant has antibodies, the fact that he was in contact with the rest of his team. And yeah, it totally overshadowed, overshadowed the Raptors getting that win. Yeah, but it will continue to be a storyline. Uh, we're getting closer and closer to that first half of the season ending having an all-star game which we've already talked about probably a bad idea uh but there'll be a lot of rescheduling and and weird games in the second half of the season the nba i think is just gonna trudge through until they can make it to the playoffs maybe they'll have a little bit of a buffer period before the playoffs uh but we know there's going to be no bubble because the players don't want that so it'll be interesting to follow I will move on to the other Saturday night games that I was able to catch bits and pieces of the Dallas Mavericks scrape out a win uh, because they had an on night offensively in their on and off season. And Donjic put up 42 against Steph's 57 uh, crazy numbers from Steph. Uh, but the Mavs are able to pull it out late and, uh, yeah, just a big win for them that the Mavericks needed to turn their fortunes around a little bit. And uh, for the Warriors, they're still hanging in that playoff picture. Draymond Green had a fantastic stat line of two points, six rebounds, 14 assists, two blocks, two steals. Just such a bizarre stat line, but that's what you're going to get from Draymond. Uh, his shooting percentages are down on this, uh, on based on his career numbers, and I think he is a little bit less hesitant to – to shoot nowadays and so he like just shows that you still need Steph uh to put up a ton of points like he did in that night the other game uh that I wanted to note is the New Orleans Pelicans pull out the one point win uh Zion and Brandon Ingram have been offensive forces all season but as of late they have noticed that their defense has been terrible and Stan Van Gundy has been getting on them. And I think you're just starting to see a little bit more effort and a little bit more attentiveness from both of those guys. Cause we know both of them have the potential to be really great defenders. Brandon Ingram has the length and the lateral quickness to be able to stay in most of in front of most of the wings in the league uh, and was able to do that back when he was in LA and LeBron was yelling at him every second of every game. But Zion, like we saw flashes of what he could be at Duke when he's flying out and blocking three pointers and jumping 10 feet in the air to swat away a floater attempt and uh, getting chase downs and just being kind of a, a, a rover all over the paint and, and finding people. And he's obviously not going to be able to keep quicker guys in front of him. He's lost a lot of his lateral quickness, but he can bait guys into attempting shots at the rim and, and getting up high to, to stuff them. And if they, if they're locking in a little bit more, it's kind of like what I've been consistently preaching throughout the season is if guys are willing to give up a couple points, a couple assists, a couple rebounds off the stat sheet and really lock in on some of the intangible stuff. And, and especially the defensive side of the floor, then it's going to translate to wins. And if that's what these guys want, then they have to make that trade off. And I think these two are starting to do it. And you can see the Pelicans have now won three in a row. They're still back in the standings, but it's a good trend. And if they continue to build on this trend, then this Pelicans team with the talent it has could be in the mix to make a trade to fix a bit of their space spacing. But if not, they're just going to be a team that's fun to watch and will be in that mix for the, for the play in seeds. 
the last game on Saturday night to cap it off. Uh, we had a double overtime thriller between the Los Angeles Lakers and the Detroit Pistons, <laughs> which is maybe not what people were expecting, but it is the NBA. And there's some semblance of parody that happens on a night to night basis, especially in the regular season. Uh, LeBron James, another signature performance to add to his campaign with uh, two clutch threes to put away the Pistons in double overtime. It, it does worry me that he's playing so many minutes and he's playing deep into a double overtime against the last place team in the Eastern Conference. But Pistons beat them the first time, though. Eh? Yeah, <laughs> I their number. I guess. Yeah, just a weird matchup. Um, and and the my guess is that the Lakers are trying to just really put the pedal down for the first half of the season so that they can ease themselves into a playoff seed. They really don't want to fall to that seven spot. So they're really trying to separate themselves so they can at least get one of those first six seeds and they don't have to play in the play in. And then you'll see once they've locked in kind of that, that top six, I think you'll definitely see AD and LeBron basically getting no minutes for the rest of those games, really trying to conserve themselves for the playoffs. And and right now just LeBron's in sprint mode. <laughs> and yeah. it's I, I fun do to watch. Think- I do think they should be freezing like all of the B samples they get from LeBron just for future generations to study when we've had like three more cycles of the cat and mouse between the doping, anti-doping and uh, the anti-doping have like caught up of tomorrow have caught up with the doping of today. Um, we're gonna, I mean, with father time, with, like the forum it's just it's always are they gonna recede is the question until it's not and there's some players who just don't seem to eight or get wear and tear the way others do and lebron is just similar to james harden like one of those players so i'm maybe it'll happen but i don't it's been so superhuman so far like why start put treating him as a mere mortal now and it's like especially with him like the three-point shooting has improved and like i don't i don't see why people didn't expect that to happen when you're that great you're willing to put more in time into a skill and he if he is going to need to extend his career even a couple more years after this he's really going to have to be a good jump shooter and a good like post player uh because that's how mj and kobe really extended their production late into their careers uh, was with the jump shot and, and the post game. So that'll be the thing to watch with LeBron as we get later into this season. And then obviously for the next couple of years, uh, until finally Bronny shows up and he finally gets to walk off into the sunset yeah, <laughs> and hand I mean, the keys over to his son. The, uh, success of space jam two will be the watermark of how we measure LeBron versus, uh, Jordan's goatness. Um, I'm looking forward to that one. It's been yeah. a while since I've seen like a new movie. <laughs> I think there's going to be the new James Bond coming out soon, but uh, I can't say I'm particularly excited about that one. Yeah, just it's been a while since I've seen like a new movie that's come out. It's been a lot of watching throwbacks, uh, late night Netflix stuck in quarantine, right? <laughs> yeah, I, I feel like I need to have an edibles and Space Jam night. It's been a while <laughs> since I've seen that one to get a little more excited, but. Uh, like Mike just came to Disney Plus. That's an OG one too. I do remember that one. Uh, uh, but Space Jam's on a pedestal of its own. Yeah, for sure. 
You can't beat Looney Tunes. All right. Last game I want to talk about was one of the uh, Sunday afternoon games yesterday. The Sacramento Kings pull out the victory against the Los Angeles Clippers, and they have now won seven of their last eight. Uh, one of the hottest teams in the NBA. Uh, they, on, I believe it was on Friday night, they beat the Nuggets despite uh, Nikola Jokic putting up 50 points. Uh, and then they come out and beat this Clippers team that was at full strength. It's been fantastic to see the the step that De'Aaron Fox has taken over the past couple of weeks. He's averaging over 30 points and he's playing at, at a very high speed because he's so quick. Uh, Tyrese Halliburton won rookie of the month for the first month of the season. And he's just been an absolute stud, super solid, does all the things the right way. Uh, they're finally figuring out what they want to get from Marvin Bagley because it's been a while since he's been a full-time piece in that rotation. Uh, you've got Harrison Barnes stepping up. Uh, he's th- This team's just finally coalescing, and they're finally figuring out their identity. It's been a really long time since the Sacramento Kings have been successful, and so it's nice to see that some of these pieces that they've invested in are starting to produce. Um, and just another team to add to the loaded West, right? It's just another team to throw into the mix to watch. And there's going to be some really great games down the stretch in the Western conference. Yeah. I, my eyes, when I watch the Sacramento Kings have been on Halliburton. I mean, some of the shots he's made and like the steadiness he's had throughout games, making them has just been terrifying to see from a rookie. And you just wonder always like if they're that good where do they go from there i don't know if uh, the sophomore slump is as much of a thing in basketball as it is in hockey yeah but yeah i mean that kind of shooting put next to the speed of fox is a pretty scary guard combo so neither of us had the sacramento kings in our top 10 picks and uh making us look a little silly but i'm okay with that i'm okay with that it's nice to see them get a little bit of success all right i think we're just gonna jump right into some talking hockey because there wasn't anything too much that stood out so i apologize to those who are not leafs fans that's pretty much all we're gonna talk about here uh they come out they dominate the canucks again a 5-1 win austin matthews makes uh the rookie chatfield look like he was standing still on one of the goals and then had like he's just he's so good Austin is just so good. I, I love watching him play. Uh, Wayne Simmons had two goals, one of them on the power play where he just turned around and sniped it. That was lovely. And then the tip, just he's all his goals are going to be net front. Uh, he won't have a couple for a while. We'll get there. Uh, the Leafs have scored now seven straight games, a goal on the power play. Uh, and Manny Malhotra has been, done a fantastic job reorienting the power play and kind of splitting guys up on unit one unit two creating a bit of competition and incentive between the two units to really see who can produce the best so that's been really really effective mitch marner continues to just grab points everywhere and gobble them up uh and freddie has been what we've needed him to be so far with campbell being out he's got to play a ton of these games until jack's back and uh there were moments when he's a little unsteady, but for the most part, he made some big saves uh, in the limited action he saw in the first two periods, and that was important. 
there was a deflating offside goal taken back in that in that game on Saturday night, which you know how I stand on offside. Like that's such a ticky tack. It is offside. The goal comes back, but I just don't appreciate how close it is because it really doesn't affect the play too much. Uh, but that goal gets taken back and that was kind of the big sucker punch to the Canucks and they really didn't have life after that. They're going to try and, and scramble and, and at least get some points tonight as they go for round three Leafs and Canucks. But from what I've seen so far, the Leafs like are truly just dominating the Canucks in their end. Uh, it's, it's been tough to watch the, the Canucks D try and deal with the Leafs high power though. Yeah. I mean, it's, I was so nervous heading into this series, having the Habs who are kind of neck and neck with the Leafs for like the number one spot in the division and kind of in the whole league. Um, after watching the Habs dominate the Canucks, like, okay, this is the standard they've set of like what the best team does to a underperforming, not elite not high level team and it's nice to see the Leafs come out and match that standard just the goaltending what it should the high powered offense as it should be the defense not giving up much I mean a good offense is the best defense but defense I didn't catch the game but from the Thursday night I think game it everything was clicking and the stat line says that trend just continued but yes we get into the injury bug and luckily fingers crossed right now the covid stuff has been okay north of the border for the hockey and hasn't had too much of an impact but the leafs the injuries are starting to pile up and and that's one of the concerns of obviously every team has going into a season uh wayne simmons looks to be out six weeks uh with his injury which is a huge bummer they've already lost joe thornton Obviously lost uh, Nick Robertson, uh, three kind of key pieces on the offensive side. And then Jack Campbell's out right now. So no backup goalie and, and Travis Dermott is out with the injury. So a lot of, a lot of injuries down the line for the Leafs. Luckily they're a bit deeper than they have been in previous years. You're going to have to look for guys like Spezza to keep up their production. You're going to have to look for guys like VC and Travis Boyd and, Nick Patan, who actually has been pretty good against Canucks the last two games. You have to look for guys like that to step up. I think probably Mikheyev gets the call up to the second line to play with uh, Willie and, and, and Tavares, but you could see any one of those guys really get thrown into that role uh, because they all are kind of a similar type player in terms of some decent offensive talent. They buzzed around a bit, but they won't dish out too much physical punishment. Uh, I think that's the biggest loss that you get from Simmons and Thornton is now you really don't have anyone to sit at the front of the net again, which is what the Leafs could not do last year. And so hopefully they can hang on and maybe there's a trade in there somewhere to just kind of stem the tide. I saw they signed Scott Sabrin off waivers. I don't know if that's really going to do much. Uh, maybe they'll stick him on the fourth line. I, I doubt it. He's, he's not, he's not great. Um, but yeah, just tough for the penalties, or it's tough for the injuries, pardon me. Uh, the Leafs got to really just slog through it and get those guys fresh. It could actually be a blessing in disguise if, if Thornton and Simmons get a lower uh, usage rate throughout the season so that they're still fresh for the playoffs because that's when they're going to be needed the most. Uh, so, yeah, just 
we'll see how it goes tonight with the new look lineup and yeah, just keep on chugging. They're still at the top of the North division, which is all you can ask for. Yeah. I, the power plays probably the biggest loss and uh, Thornton and Simmons were our two guys we wanted to put in front of that. And it's so heartbreaking that Simmons after getting two goals and kind of cementing a place on the second line, which it, I love that second line of Tavares, Nylander, Simmons, like it just matches like, speed skill and physicality and grit so it or it balances all those qualities out so well um but i guess there's two ways to look at it one is that those guys are just so good that kind of the same as matthews marner it doesn't really matter who you put on the line with them they're just going to elevate that third player's game and I've loved what I've seen of Mikheyev, so I'd be really happy if he and Keith has gone to that a couple times. I've actually really liked the looks that uh, second line has been able to give in the offensive zone, especially when those three players start buzzing. So I guess from on one hand, you could say like, well, they're going to have chemistry with like almost every damn player on the roster if the injuries keep forcing Keith to cycle through the lines. But you would like to see some consistency develop. Uh, I was just thinking about this now with uh, the way the American three divisions are going. Maybe what you see happen is if I'm like, what I kind of hope to see from both the NBA and the NHL is they say, okay, I know we said we were going to start the playoffs on this day, but like, hey, COVID cases are going down, vaccines are coming. We're just going to push the playoffs back two weeks and like fit all the games we missed in there two weeks, three weeks, I don't know. And the playoffs will start when they start. No need to like really, really compress the schedule and like threaten the wear and tear. But if you're in the Canadian division, maybe that turns into like a two, three week layoff because there's just way and you get all your players to full health. There is. I guess we'll monitor that as it comes along. We'll get a peek at what the NBA is thinking soon when they announce the second half of the season. And we'll, we're watching the NHL uh, go through its COVID adversity in real time. I think uh, four games got postponed Saturday. So that that's my hope. They rather than the NFL style of just fit all the games in and start the playoffs at the scheduled time, which you sort of understand because they were on track for the regular season already and the Super Bowl is such like an iconic time of year. I understand the thought behind not wanting to mess that up and disrupt it, but I hope the uh, NHL, ML, NLB, NBA can be a little more flexible. Yeah, it sounds like a smart idea. Uh, we don't we obviously know that some leagues don't make smart ideas, but uh, yeah, only thing we can do is from here is watch and put our, our opinions out there and maybe it gets picked up somewhere by some executive and they decide to make the call, but really doubt that happens. Luckily, we have all our virtual neighbors out there who will listen to the call and, and take it up with us. I, I hope most of you agree. If you don't, feel free to reach out to us. Uh, it'd be an interesting discussion, but uh, yeah, I want to thank each and every one of you once again for listening we appreciate the support uh find us anywhere and and don't be afraid to reach out on social media we'd love to interact and don't be afraid to share with your friends trying to build that following and i uh, appreciate each and every one of you thanks for listening 
Well said. I've got nothing more to add other than the usual sports next door signing off.